I'm turning this morning to the 15th chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 15, and we'll be looking this morning at verses 21 through 28, and we will take for our subject this morning, crumbs from the master's table, crumbs from the master's table. If you look with me at verse 21 of Matthew 15, the Word of God says, Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. But he answered her not a word, and his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord. Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. You'll notice that in our text, the word behold in verse 21. The word behold draws our attention, showing us that there's something worth looking at. Not only something worth looking at, but something worth considering. Something that is good not only for our eyes, but something that is especially good for our soul. Just as Jesus is going to the coast of Tyre and Sidon, we see an event where a woman also comes out of the same coast to meet with Him. One of the great truths I immediately saw this week as I was studying is the way that God draws people unto Himself through Christ. Sooner or later, there's going to be a meeting between Christ and His people. We just don't always know when the meeting's going to be. But what a glorious picture this is of the Lord. He is out seeking. And here comes a woman, not by accident, but is declared to be a woman of Canaan. That's an important detail. This woman can claim absolutely, positively, no account of nationality to place a claim on Christ. She cannot say that I am the house of Israel. I can claim Him because of my nationality. She was a Gentile. Gentiles were referred to as dogs. They were dogs in the eyes of many, especially the Jews, that they had no claim on Christ. She was merely a Gentile. But it's interesting that this mother knew the name of David. You'll see, we'll talk more about this in a moment. Verse 22, she acknowledges, thou son of David. But she goes one step further. She not only knew the name of David, but she had faith in David's son which is completely different than just knowing the name. She had faith. What led her to travel is a love for her daughter. We're told her daughter was grievously vexed with the devil. 
Again, I thought this week, there probably is not anything, there are no limits to what a mother would do for their daughter. There are no limits what a father would do for a son or a daughter. The beauty of what this mother is seeking after is she's seeking after help for her daughter who is vexed with a devil. And by the way, this is not some fairy tale. This daughter was truly vexed with a demon. It leads her as she's leaving the coast, and Jesus, of course, is leaving where He's coming from, to cry unto the Son of David. What is she asking for? She is crying and begging Him for what we've heard so many times today, mercy. We saw in our text this morning in Psalm 136, in 26 verses, 26 times, the phrase, His mercy endureth forever, is mentioned. And we looked at the beauty of what it is to know that God's mercy is everlasting. God's mercy has no bounds. It has no limits. It has no end. And I hope we're still chewing on that already, even during this time. But you'll notice that this woman in her imploring our Lord, she recognizes there's a, there's a barrier between the Gentile and the Jew. But she appeals to this Jesus. She appeals to this son of David as if she was just as able as his disciples were. What is she asking for? She's asking for the healing of a child. Again, nothing for a parent will pull more on them than mercy being extended to a child. And notice, she doesn't give demands. She simply says, have mercy on me, O Lord. She understands that mercy is left in the hands of God. She understands that mercy is distributed on whom He'll have mercy. Romans 9 teaches us that. I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. That's a biblical teaching. We can't get around it. She's begging the Son of David to have mercy. But notice she says... Have mercy on me. It's the daughter who's grievously vexed. She's asking for mercy for her daughter as if she's asking for mercy for herself. There's a whole sermon in that. She comes and she asks for mercy. Have mercy on me. But notice she says, O Lord. She recognizes this son of David is more than just a prophet. He's more than just a man. He's just an, more than just a good example. She asks for mercy from the Lord. Every Jew who was a believer knew that this prophet Jesus was the one promised that would be greater than Solomon. And he no doubt was greater than Solomon. Here's the son of David. But you notice she doesn't lay out her entire case. She doesn't lay out everything that's happening. She just simply says and she states, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. Again, she pleads for mercy. What taught this woman how to pray? Or we might say, who taught her that this is where she needed to come to? 
Remember, she's a Gentile. She doesn't have the same privileges and did not have the same oracles given to her as the Jews did. And that's why Jesus makes mention, and we'll look at it in just a few moments, when he says, I am sent to the house, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is not there by coincidence either. So how did this woman know to come to Jesus? Her pleading was without end. Again, I've been reminded in thinking of my own life and my own thoughts of my family, my own examples. And it's just led me to some application today that I'm just going to mention briefly. And I think it would challenge us to ask, do we pray for our children the same way that this woman prayed for hers? Do we pray for our sons and daughters this way? Do we pray and plead with God that they'll have mercy on our children, that God will have mercy and give them sovereign, redeeming grace so that their souls would be saved? Do we pray to that end instead of praying that our children would grow up and be successful business people and successful in life and nothing wrong with that, but the greatest prayer of a parent should be, have mercy on my daughter, have mercy on my son, and show them your redeeming grace. It's the greatest prayer a parent can pray for their child. Unborn and living children who have been born. That's the greatest prayer. This woman pleaded for her daughter as if she was pleading for her own soul. This woman serves as a number of different examples, but we certainly see her imploring for her daughter. First of all, I want us to notice, we're going to do this in really two parts this morning, and the first part of this will be more of the exposition, and then I'm going to, the second part, we're going to give you some applications. But the exposition here, what we notice here, we see this picture of this woman. We also notice that Jesus commends her faith. Every detail in this account is important, and I would say it's even interesting as we look at how God deals with His people. Now Matthew says she's a woman of Canaan, which means she was a Gentile, which we've established. But Mark, in his account, in Mark chapter 7, also mentions that she was a Syrophoenician. That means that she belonged to a part of Phoenicia which bordered on Syria. Again, it identifies where she came from. We're told that she came from those coasts and that as she went from those coasts, she enters into a meeting with our Lord. But again, the question is, who taught her where to go? Who taught her which direction to go and find Jesus? How did this woman know that she, that he rather, was the son of David? This is a part of what we, I think, is so quickly slipping away, sadly, from our churches as we, re- we forget the reality of who really teaches a person to come to Christ. It's God Himself. You were taught to come to Christ not by your own volition and by your own will. You were taught to come to Christ by God Himself. How do we know to go to Christ? How did this mother know to go to Him? And how did he, she know he was the son of David? It's so easy for us to look at our world today and put the Bible into present terms and say, well, 
I'm sure she just read her New Testament. She didn't have a New Testament. She didn't have the account in Matthew 15 of where she was supposed to go. She didn't have the account of her own story. So who taught her? Who was her teacher? Surely no one but God Himself could have been her teacher and taught her to give her such faith. And that's, I said that intentionally, to give her such faith. Faith is a gift of God. Who gave her the faith to go to Jesus? Not how did she wrangle up faith on her own to go to Jesus, but who gave her faith to believe that He was the Son of God? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Before we go any further, we really need to look at one Scripture that is familiar to those who are in the Word, who know what this is to be saved by God's grace and know why you came. And that's John chapter 6. And John chapter 6, of course, we cannot read the whole chapter, but I would, I would just strongly advise you to make this a part of a reminder to you. Jesus very clearly says who will come to Him. John 6.37, All that the Father giveth Me shall come. Not might, not hope to, shall come to Me. And as a result, what happens? Him that cometh to Me, I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do Mine own will, but the will of Him that sent Me. And this is the Father's will, which has sent me that of all, that's the same context of the all that's in verse 37, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Let's not skip what the Jews did with this. The Jews then murmured at him. He was not given an invitation. He was declaring what the truth is. All that the Father giveth shall come to me. If you came to Christ, you were given by the Father. And you came to him. It's a beautiful passage. It's beautiful to think that this woman of Canaan who knew she did not have a right to claim Him because she was of the lost sheep of Israel. She knew to go to Christ. Folks, we really should rejoice in those precious truths not just for that woman's sake, but for your own sake. Behold, look at this. This is good for your eyes to see. This is good for your heart. This is good for your mind to comprehend that if you came to Christ, who taught you to come to Him? God Himself taught you. The glory of God's grace in this passage reminds us again that the Lord Jesus Himself was directing not only His steps to meet this Canaanite woman, but He directed His steps long before she was ever coming to Him. Really, the glory of God's grace runs all over the pages of this narrative. God's grace runs all over the pages of Scripture. 
Many of us come from backgrounds that at one time we might have had a little bit of disdain for God's grace. We wanted to say, no, if I was in this story, it just would have been all of me. I just would have made the determination that's where I'm going to go. But that wouldn't be biblical. When we see God's grace running before us and running all throughout the text, it reminds us of Isaiah 65, 24, which the Lord, and I'm summarizing this, it says, it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they're yet speaking, I will hear. God's already sovereignly laid this out. We put that along with a scripture like 1 John 4.19 that puts to bed any idea that you came to Christ because you loved Him. John writes, we love Him because He first loved us. Your reason for going to Christ was not your love for Him. He loved you first. So we see this woman, verse 23 and 24, again, we'll... Had he answered or not a word? This must have been a stinging response. He answered her not a word. Some who are not very good with their interpretation of Scripture or those who are just critical of the text, which we are surrounded by churches who are becoming just textual critics on everything and want to question it all, say this means Jesus was just not being very compassionate. Oh no, this has a much deeper meaning. This is Jesus testing this woman's faith. You see how easy it is to be a critic of God's Word? What a mean Jesus. Here's this woman in her sincerity and He doesn't answer her. Well, you've got to keep reading. He answered and said, or, and, or not a word, and His disciples came and besought Him. Notice where their heart was in this, saying, send her away, for she crieth after us. Well, here's a grand mistake. She never once cried after them. <laughs> she wasn't calling on the disciples. But the disciples thought so highly of themselves that she's crying after us, Lord. And oh, no, no. <laughs> she's crying after Jesus, not you disciples. But do you see how quick the disciples were to put themselves into the narrative and saying, we're... We're just the same. No, it's not what's happening here. He didn't, she didn't call him the disciples, but Christ. But he answered. Now, again, he's not answering the woman yet. He's primarily answering the disciples. He answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, again, she, of course, is hearing this interaction. But again, what prompted this woman to come and ask him? This daughter, grievously vexed with the devil, None but Jesus could help her. It's interesting that we're told in 1 John chapter number 3 that Jesus was manifested for this very reason. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that He might destroy the works of the devil. This vexing of this daughter is about to be destroyed by the works of the Son of God. For this reason, this purpose, Jesus came. 
What an amazing thought that this woman had someone to go to. Imagine, maybe I should rephrase that because I think it is, it is very apparent and it is happening today. Imagine every mother and every father whose children at this very moment are under evil possessions. And you say, I don't believe all that. You better wake up. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that devil possession and evil spirit possession has ceased. What if I'm a parent and has a child that is not in the faith? Oh, my child can't possibly be vexed with the devil. Are you sure about that? We don't fight against flesh and blood. The fight is a spiritual fight. Sadly, the church is starting to find a way that we need to fight this physically. The church doesn't need to be fighting physically. It's a spiritual battle. Folks, pleading for the souls of children, pleading for the souls of our daughters and our, and our sons. Do you see how important this is? It's not about earthly success. It is about the eternity of these young people. It's about the eternity of our spouses. This is a spiritual battle. This woman came to Jesus. She ran and she begged for His mercy. She didn't assume that He would just give it. She begged for it. We've turned the gospel into nothing more than just an invitation to ask Jesus into our heart. Salvation is begging God to show you mercy. Because you are recognizing I am a sinner. And I am not worthy of the least of God's grace. I am not worthy of the least of His blessings. I am not worthy. I beg you, God, to pour out your mercy upon me and save my soul. And the Bible says that all who come to Him, He will in no wise cast out. But we're pleading with God, not just assuming I'll just get God's mercy when I'm good and ready to get God's mercy. Notice how deep her petition really was. The ground in which she asked for this mercy. She doesn't say, send me mercy from something, send me mercy from someone. She knows that Christ Himself is mercy. She understands that the only source of mercy is the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, if you're here in a condition where you have not repented of your sins, you've not believed in Christ, I am imploring you to beg God to be merciful to you. This woman is pleading for mercy from the one who gives mercy and who is mercy. Christ Himself is mercy. What was the basis of her faith? Her faith is what she hoped in. Jesus is the Son of God. Her hope had a solid foundation. If your hope is in your church, if your hope is in your baptism, if your hope is in your, just your mere profession, your hope is on sinking sand. 
But if your hope is grounded deeply in the blood of Jesus Christ, then you have a foundation that nothing can move and nothing can shake. You cannot shake the salvation of Jesus Christ out of any of his children, no matter how much the earth shakes. Here's this poor woman who is acknowledging the son of David. This means more than just a title. This means that she understood the son of David, the son of God, is God in human nature. She understood that this is the promise of the prophets, Emmanuel, God with us. This was not just some miracle worker. She believed this was God. And by the way, to deny the deity of Jesus Christ is to be believing a false doctrine. To deny that Christ is God is heresy. You say, but my church is so loving and caring, but if they deny the deity of Christ, it is heresy. And you will die in your sins if you don't believe that Christ is the Son of God and that Christ is God. Here's this poor woman, a Gentile, pleading for mercy with Christ because He is mercy. He is the Christ. Now think about where we've been in our study of Matthew. How many thousands of people watched Jesus perform miracles? How many watched Him do this and yet they didn't know Him? But here's a woman who should not have known anything about Him. And yet she knew to go to Jesus. Again, who taught her? God Himself. How could this possibly be? Well, we get two glorious truths from this that we can look at from the case of this woman. Number one, we have to come to the conclusion that none other than God could have taught her about who Jesus Christ was. Folks, I have sat with people I have preached many, many times. I have watched people hear the Word of God. I've watched them sometimes hear the same sermon three, four, five times, and yet they still remain in unbelief. And then I've watched later, and I've watched them say, it's almost as if something, I see it now. And it was not the eloquence of the speaker it's because God Himself revealed who He was. God Himself taught her. Every time a soul is saved, it's because God Himself has shown them who He is, what their need is, why they need Him, and why their hope and trust and sufficiency is not in anything else but Jesus Christ. This woman illustrates that truth. But secondly, we see that what she was taught led her to seek Christ. She was taught who He was. She was taught about Him. And even back in that text again, I said we couldn't read it all. John 6, verse 45. It says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God, every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of, of the Father. Where do they go? Cometh unto Me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God. He hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath 
everlasting life. Those that see, those that hear, what do they do? They come to Christ. You say, but I've been sitting here for years in this church. I've seen every sermon. I've heard every word. But are you seeing Him? Are you hearing Christ? Are you hearing His Word? See, those that see, eyes that see, ears that hear, ultimately doesn't say they might come, they do come. Now notice back in our text again, I want you to notice this woman after Jesus says all this. There's so many glorious details in this. But notice verse 25. She hears that he's not answered her. The disciples are saying, send her away. He answers himself and says, I'm not sending the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She could have easily taken that as a stinging railing against her. But notice verse 25. Then came she and worshipped him. And what does she say? She doesn't say, God, that's not fair. She says, Lord, help me. Greatest prayer ever prayed of a believer and an unbeliever is, Lord, help me. Prayer is not an assistance to God. We don't pray to assist God to our salvation. We're entirely depending upon Him. That's what she's doing. She's already worshiping Him. She's acknowledging that this is a person, a man worthy of worship. She didn't move farther away from Jesus. She moved closer. Look what it says. She came. Came she. She's getting closer to Him. She's not moving away. She's not being deterred. Oh, could you imagine? Can you imagine, even for those of us who are saved today, can you imagine when we go through those times and trials and struggles in our life, how often do we just simply go to the Lord and just say, Lord, help me. You have that privilege to come boldly before the throne of grace in a time of need. He doesn't even need you to lay out all of your troubles and all of your struggles. You can simply go to Him and say, Lord, help me. Privilege of God's grace. Imagine this. Notice she continues to exercise the faith by the way that she already has. But he answered, again, another stinging response that she could have taken. But he answered and said, It is not meat to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. You're not going to find that in any soul winning course. You are not going to find a soul winning course that says, now tell them what they really are, you dog. Now, it wasn't an insult to her that was anything different than what she had already heard. Gentiles are dogs. That's not Jesus being cute and insulting. He's testing and trying her faith and He's showing and reminding us this woman is fully aware of her unworthiness. She's fully aware that I have no claim on Him. And Jesus is continuing to test, not only test her faith, and don't miss this, He's strengthening her faith. 
Because the more unworthy you feel, the more unworthy you know you are, the more glorious God's sovereign grace is. And until you get to the place where you realize just how unworthy you still are, you'll never fully understand God's grace for you. She continues to exercise her faith. Jesus speaks, now he's speaking directly to her. Think how she must have felt to hear the words drop from the person that she is putting all of her trust into. And yet we already know Jesus knows her, Jesus loved her, and from the very first moment she cried to him, he had already determined to do for her what she hadn't even yet asked for. He's able to do above all that we can think or ask. Christ is seeking the soul before the soul even knows it's being sought. Isn't that an amazing truth? Christ was seeking you before you had any desire to even look at Him. That's the beauty of grace. Grace in some places is taught the grace that you muster up to seek Him. Jesus Christ is the one. But imagine again, still, the faith that the Lord had given her, even though it was already going to happen, that faith is being tested and being strengthened. This woman stands as a reminder to every believer, to the church, for her faith. Imagine being commended for your faith. That's what this woman is. Let's keep reading. And she said to him calling her a dog. Truth, Lord. That's why I said it won't work in a soul winning conference. You're valuable. You're loved. You're awesome. Some of them are getting really bad. You're worth it. You're, you were worth it to God, to Christ, to die on that cross. No, no, no. You were unworthy then and you're unworthy now. And it's only by God's marvelous grace that you're saved. And it's not because you were valuable. And yet this woman says truth. You've said it right. By the standards of what is being declared, I am a dog. But notice what she says. And I have this word highlighted, underlined, circled. And she said, truth, Lord, yet. I told you my favorite theological words are words that don't come across as theology. The nevertheless is the therefores, and this ranks right up there with yet. She's acknowledging something. She's acknowledging I realize that I'm not. However, <clears throat> the dogs who you've just called me, Jesus, they eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. The Gentiles, rather, eat of the crumbs we might even say the crumbs of grace which fall from their master's table. And if you know the beauty of God's grace and you truly know what it means for you, you're satisfied with a crumb. She understands what's happening. She understands what Jesus has said. 
I'm sent to the lost sheep of Israel. She affirms her own unworthiness, fully trusting in the crumbs of grace or fully trusting in the grace that it is God if He be so merciful to give it to her and that any crumb she receives is only going to come by and through Jesus Christ. What an amazing passage this is. And then we see Jesus commends her faith. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Now what I love about that is great is thy faith that I've given you. (laughs) Not I'm so impressed on how faithful you are. Somewhere along church history, we we took a grand detour in what it means to be faithful. Faithfulness comes from the faith that's given to you. The gift of faith that's given by God. Great is thy faith. This eternal faith. This saving faith that you have. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. What's he saying? Exactly what you came asking for has been done. That daughter of yours, she's no longer grievously vexed with the devil. Notice there was no flashy, miraculous work here. He just said it. It's done. Your faith is being commended, and here we are all these years later, and a woman's faith is being being affirmed and confirmed, and it's being affirmed because of her acknowledgement of her own unworthiness and the goodness of Jesus Christ. A person's not going to come to Christ without a knowledge of their unworthiness. Well, let's make a couple quick applications. A lot of those applications came out. But first of all, as Jesus finishes this subject, He talks about this grace. He not only affirms this instant of grace that's been shown upon her, but he's also removed this painful trial, not only for the mother, but also for the daughter. But first of all, let's notice, and we'll start each one of these just so it helps keep it in our mind. We'll start each one of these with the word behold. First application, behold the sovereign grace of the Lord in this chosen vessel of God taken from the coast of Tyre and Sidon. How evident is this proof that the Bible teaches us that people will be gathered from all nations, from all corners of the world? That salvation is not just for one group in this country or one group over here, but He is going to draw people from every nation. And one of the ways that we know it's going to happen is what we're told in Psalm 110 verse 3 about people being made willing. Psalm 110, verse 3, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. We see so clearly here that this woman was a chosen vessel of God. The certainty of God's God's people coming to Him is based upon the covenant that had already been made. This woman was one of the all that was given by the Father before the foundation of the world. Does that apply for every person who is all that had been given? It absolutely does. All that the Father has given will come 
So we see the beauty of this. I love what Spurgeon said about this. This is a, this is a, a, a tremendous quote. He said, when sinners come to Christ, it is because Christ comes to them. Notice the two statements, how they coincide. Jesus departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon, and this woman of Canaan came out of the same coast. And so they met. And I think this is a prayer of every, every believer sitting here this morning. May there be such a meeting here between someone who has come from a long distance to meet Christ and Christ who has come on purpose to meet that person. That's a beautiful quote. So secondly, we behold the sovereign grace of the Lord in providing the way for this poor Gentile to come. God used a bodily affliction to her daughter to bring her to Christ. I'm not trying to be mystical and I'm not trying to be philosophical. Well, folks, I'm telling you, the Lord is not limited on the means in which He will use to bring His children to Him. God can use tragedies in our life. He can use times of discouragement. He can use our own children. He can use these things to draw us to Himself. Every trial, the Bible says, is sent from Him. Our faith is being tested. It's being strengthened. But sometimes it may be the trial of someone else that brings another person and shows them the way to Christ. By bringing afflictions on the body of this Canaanite's daughter, and by giving grace to the soul, she's brought to Jesus. Somebody might say, is that an act of mercy? It absolutely is. That God would use bodily affliction, is that an act of mercy? If it brings you to Christ through bodily affliction, and you come to Christ and you're eternally saved, that's an act of mercy. Nobody wishes bodily affliction. Nobody's wishing for disease upon themselves. But if God uses that affliction to bring a family member to Christ or to bring you to Christ, you're going to rejoice in that. Because God can use any means necessary. Application number three, behold the sovereign grace of the Lord in dealing with her and all His people. Again, remember when Jesus did speak, He was not just speaking to her, but He was also speaking to His disciples. She was hearing the words that were being said, and no doubt she must have felt the sting of what He was saying. She was not of the house of Israel. She couldn't number herself as among the sheep. It would not have been surprising, humanly speaking, if she'd have just said, okay, forget it then. But that's not what she did. She kept pleading and she worshiped him. How does God deal with people that he's bringing to himself? Exactly the same way. The first time you were made aware of your unworthiness, why didn't you just run away? And how many times have we sat and just begged people? And sadly, I think we make a grand mistake. We start getting in the flesh and we said, what is so, why can't you understand this? 
and we put this pressure on people, would you just pray the prayer? You are committing a crime against the soul when you try to do that. Give the Word and let the Word through the Spirit save the soul. You don't have to get cute in providing some new way to Christ. Give them the Scriptures. It's not about our methods. This book has been the way to point people to Christ that we can show them. We don't have to have a new way to do it. Say, no, this is 2022. you got to have a new way to do it. No, you preach the same gospel that the apostles were preaching. You give the same truths to no matter what part of the world you're in. It's still Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter what sin they're guilty of. It doesn't matter what they've done. They still have to come to Christ the same way. And they're not going to come to Christ by you being hateful to them. Give them the glorious Word of God. Listen, you can stand for truth and not be hateful about it. When people start to say, that you know what? Sometimes I see non-Christians that are more friendly than people who claim to know Christ. There's a problem. And if we ever get known as a church that is hating people because they're in sin... We've missed it. We don't have to approve and uh, uh, compromise and say it's okay. No, it's not okay. Sin's never okay. But we don't have to be hateful about it. Listen, folks, again, when you remember your own unworthiness and how Christ gave the way for you to come to Him, and unless He gives you the way and puts you on the way, you're not coming either. Where would you be today without Christ? You might be here today. Where are you without Christ? Right now, there is no hope apart from Christ. From the very first meeting with her, we see that Jesus continued to deal with her by strengthening her faith. For a minute, it looks like Jesus was not going to be merciful, but that's not what His intent ever was. Just like when we get into periods of our life where we think God's mercy has ended or God is, God is no longer taking notice of me. I mentioned this in the first hour. Sometimes when we get wrong in our approach, we get wrong in our sin, God removes blessings and favor from us in order to get our eyes back on Christ. It's part of the beauty of the love of Him chastening us. God, God's being mean with me. God's being angry with me. If He's correcting you, He's chastening you because He loves you. Not only sovereign grace in dealing with her and all His people, but finally, and I think this might be just as important as all of them. I didn't rank these in order of importance per se. But behold the humbleness of the soul. And what sovereign grace actually accomplishes in the heart. If God's grace has produced pride in you and arrogance in your knowledge, you have not been changed by grace. One of the greatest attempts 
to damn those of us who believe in the doctrines of grace? And this is the straw man argument. Is that you reformed people are so arrogant. If you and I are portraying any form of arrogance, we still don't get it. God has not called you to impress people with what you know. He's not called us to be arrogant and say we're the, we're the ones that have the, the corner on the truth. It produces humility. If we truly believe the doctrines of grace, we actually ought to be the most humble people there are. And by the way, the other damning accusation is, is well, if you believe in sovereign grace, then you don't have any evangelistic zeal. So if you have no burden for souls, then you still don't get it. You actually should want to see people and want to preach the gospel more because of the doctrines of grace, not less. But every church that doesn't believe in the doctrines of grace, which we believe the Bible teaches, that's what you're being accused of. You're arrogant and non-evangelistic. And if we're both of those or one of the two of those, we still haven't realized our unworthiness and we certainly haven't gotten humble yet. And like we always say, if you have to tell a person you're humble, you've just proved that you're not. Because it is not something you portray, it's what you become. She, this woman knew, I'm not worthy to ask you of anything. She just simply said, truth, Lord. I'm unworthy of the children's fare. I'm unworthy. But it's only when we get a proper view of the glory of Christ that we will actually view our own unworthiness properly. What was her? Her attitude was not arrogance. Her attitude was, I'm not even worthy to receive a crumb. Every one of us, that's us. We're not worthy to receive a crumb. It's only by the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's why He alone is exalted. That's why we exalt God. That's why we believe in the Trinity. God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This poor Canaanite dog is seated in heavenly places. Now, I'm not going to get into speculation about what's going to happen when we get to heaven. We've heard that so many times about I want to talk to this person, talk to this person. Folks, I'm telling you, the only person, the only one we're going to want to see is we're going to want to be at the feet of Jesus Christ and we are going to be everlastingly praising Him for mercy that He saved us. How much more evidence do we need to see the beauty of what an unworthy soul acknowledges? Unworthiness doesn't mean that we're just simply allowing people to walk over us. No, it's, it, is a, it is an attribute that can only be given by God. God is not impressed with our false unworthiness. Sometimes we have a way of trying to impress people by intentionally showing humility and showing how unworthy we are. But when we're alone and it's just us, it's not really who we are. Our unworthiness is proved by the goodness of who God is. One look at God compared to us ought to remind us 
That it's what, the, it's what God's grace accomplishes in our heart. It brings humility of the soul. But how grateful we should be. If you're saved today and Christ has saved you, how grateful you should be that He came to where you are and saved your soul. If you're here today and you've never repented of your sins and you've never trusted in Christ alone, I'm not pleading on my account and I'm not pleading on any righteousness of my own. The gospel is not an invitation to consider. It's a command. And the command is to repent and believe the gospel. The Bible promises all that comes unto him, he will in no wise cast out. I'm pleading with you and begging you to run to Christ. Not run to a man, not run to a person, run to Christ. Fully trusting him alone as the only payment for your sins. No person can forgive your sins. No priest can forgive your sins. Only Jesus Christ. And it's through His blood and His righteousness. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we are grateful that we've heard the Word again. And Lord, for some of us, we maybe have heard this account many times. But Lord, I pray that being familiar with this text would not leave us to not consider what we've heard. Whether we sit here today as a believer or an unbeliever, your word has spoken to all. And for those that have claimed Christ, they've repented of their sins and they've trusted in Christ alone. Lord, this just reminds us of just how good and merciful of a God you are. And Lord, I pray that it continues to do the work that it should, continuing to humble us and remind us of our unworthiness and Christ-worthiness. And Lord, may we rejoice in that. May we rejoice that you have not made it possible at all that we can add a single ounce to our salvation. We have nothing to boast in. We cannot boast in nationality. We cannot boast in church denomination. We can only boast in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But Father, we pray today that if there is anyone in an unsaved condition today, Lord, that we pray that just like this woman, that Lord, you are already seeking them out. And Lord, that today would be that day when they come to an understanding that their eyes are opened and their ears are unstopped to hear and they're made willing to believe and faith is given to them. And they repent and trust Christ. Lord, I pray that you would give us a burden for people, Lord, that we would never use our knowledge or what we believe is a perfect theological understanding and use it as a way to batter people. But may we have compassion, may we be meek, may we be tender and gentle, and yet still stand for what the Word of God teaches regarding sin. But may we always remember what and who we would be if Christ had not called us and drew us. Or may we think upon these truths throughout the remainder of this day and certainly the remainder of this week, but every day of our life. And it's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen.